What's up everybody, this is Lisa Fields, the founder and president of the Jew3 Project. Excited to announce that we're hosting a virtual conference called Through Eyes of Color. Now, if you see in the corner right there, you see the book, the curriculum that we released last year, late last year, Through Eyes of Color, a contextualized guide to helping you know what you believe and why. Many of you have it. If you don't have it, grab it today. Uh, but we're doing a three-day virtual conference for you. It's jam-packed with scholars, thought leaders, pastors, and speakers from all across the globe. Uh, we spare no expense. First day is set up with informational apologetics. We have lectures on black cults, African spirituality. Um, the topics vary, black atheism, the problem with evil, philosophy. It's a lot we jam packed in that day. Decolonizing your theology, all of that. But on the second day, is incarnational, how to live that out. What does the life of an apologist look like? How can you become whole as an individual before you try to carry out this message to the world? And then how do you do that? What are some practical steps? We want a holistic approach to apologetics. Um, and we wanna give that to you at this conference. The third day is VIP access only. You'll get to interact with the scholars and thought leaders um, to ask your questions about the first two days. We're gonna have praise and worship. We're gonna have a DJ. It's gonna be crazy. So join us October 1st and 3rd for the Through Eyes of Color virtual experience. You don't wanna miss it. God bless. Hello, welcome to the Jew3 Project podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Fields. I'm the founder of the Jew3 Project. How are you guys doing? My name is Shobaraka, and I am here hosting uh, the podcast for uh, Jude 3 Project. Uh, today, I am going to have a conversation with Dr. Esau Macaulay, good dude, uh, friend of mine, and we're going to talk about his book, Reading While Black. Uh, let's go ahead and bring on Esau Macaulay so that he can... Uh... What's going on, brother? Oh, nothing much. Just sitting here trying to Get ready for school, starting back in a couple of days. By the time this actually goes, I think uh, we'll be done with the first week of class. All right. Well, you know, uh, get your little respite and, uh, you know, get ready to go back to the jungle. Can you yeah. please give the people, uh, for those folks who may not know you, who may not be familiar with who you are, uh, yeah. give us a little bio of yourself. My name is Isam Macaulay. I'm an assistant professor of New Testament, but I always wanted to be a rapper. No, it's flat. Uh, I, I also I'm married. I have four kids. I write. Um, so the book that we're going to be talking about, um, Reading While Black. I also write popular articles. I'm a monthly monthly contributing writer for the New York Times. I've also done some stuff with the Washington Post and Christianity Today. Um, I think that's about it. Excellent. Excellent. All right. So your book is Reading While Black. It released, uh, I think, June. Um, no, correct. it releases September 1st. So I got the early copy. My bad. So, yes, you special. <laughs> I, I thought it was out already. Look how terrible I am. Um, yeah. Great book. Um, I am going to be discussing with you the chapter The South Got Something to Say. And yes. I connect with this chapter 
in a special way because uh, you start off by talking about a group that I love as well as you. Yes. Anybody who is closely connected to hip hop knows what that reference is. It's referring yes. to Outkast winning the Source Award and them getting up and making a statement. It's declaration saying, yeah. "Oh, y'all ain't got love for the South. Uh, y'all don't. Y'all not not here to respect this. We got something to say as well." Why was it yeah. important? to use that as an introduction and a connection in some ways to your stories with your grandmother growing up, loving Mahalia Jackson, you having this love for outcasts and hip hop and, and, and this synthesis of black um, of thought and understanding and from theological posture. Well, one of the things is I thought a couple of, I say a lot, there's a lot of books out there that's right. That, that are about black people. Mm. And um, what I wanted to do was to make sure that I wrote a book to black people. In order to do that, I wanted to signal from the first time you open the book that this is for us. And not only that, I'm, I'm a Southerner. I'm from a certain generation. And if you were if you're a son of a certain age, everybody remembers like that line from Andre 3000. And so what I wanted is I wanted like black young people or even black middle aged people like myself to open up the book and immediately see that this was the book that was written for them. The other thing was that I wanted to, and, and, and in that sense, the book is kind of a turning over the tables in, that, in its most radical form, kind of the way the, the academy usually works, where the attention isn't focused on young black men or even black men of middle age who, who kind of love hip hop. It's always thinking towards the white middle class. And so I wanted to signal from the opening of the book that this is the book like by us and for us. And it was my way of saying, like, give me space to do what I want to do. You talk about um, how Andre was this third thing. Yeah. Right. There's East, there's East Coast music, there's West Coast hip hop. Yeah. And those are the prevailing thoughts of the of the time. But then all of a sudden there's this third thing. And you and you make that connection in theological postures as well. And then you use this term, uh, black ecclesial interpretation. Can you explain that to us? What is black ecclesial interpretation in uh, reading while black? Yeah, can I, can I say a little bit about the hip hop part of it too? I think yeah. Southerners, I think, I, th I, th I think like, we think of the South, there's a lot of things that you think about. You think about like, you know, the, the bass out of uh, um, Miami and kind of the party music, but they don't really take, they don't really, they didn't really take um, Southerners seriously is like having bars, and so like Andre could rap. So like stereotypically, you have like the East Coast with lyrical dexterity, and kind of like the West Coast with this kind of raw, uncut depiction of Black life. And the South had kind of like the, the bars that you kind of associate with New York, but with the, with a Southern flavor and kind of the the, the um, I don't know what you would call it robust culture coming out of the West. So it, it really doesn't fit as anything other than this, like a, a synthesis of all of these things, because hip hop doesn't originate here. It kind of comes from other places. Now, what I wanted to say is that when you then look at like the academy or when you look at the theology more broadly, there's these different categories. And obviously the categories can be, can be, have more, more or less nuance, but you kind of have white evangelicalism. And then you have kind of white progressivism. And each one of those are kind of like pressing on or like trying to adopt black voice for their own purposes. So what evangelicals need, like the black church and its kind of general theological um, traditionalism to kind of prop up like the things that they want to say about the Bible. And then kind of white progressivism oftentimes wants to 
take wants to kind of participate in the social action that it marked parts of the black church, but they don't necessarily like our theological emphases. And I even in, in the book, I talk about like the, the black ecclesia theology is like the fourth thing, because what you see in the academy is kind of like the black progressive tradition where they have the social action that I think comes and activism that comes out of the black church, but has kind of different theological emphases. And so when I talked about black ecclesial theology, what I wanted to say is like, it's the, it's the theological interpretive stance that comes out of black Christian churches, the church of God in Christ and me, the black Baptist tradition, their habits of reading the Bible, preaching, activism. And I feel like there's a unique way and a unique, a unique posture towards the Bible that I try to articulate. It's almost like when you go to like a party and people, you can't always articulate what makes a party good. You can say it's the music, it's the people, but like when you kind of go into the space, you're like, oh, I know I'm here. And so that's what I try to say like the black church is. It's not necessarily like easily articulated in the sense of here are these 15 characteristics, but it's like, you know it when you see it. And so what I tried to do in the book was like articulate this thing that shaped me that I didn't see often described in print. So in your chapter, you give a definition of evangelicalism through Bevington. And I'm, I'm, I'm wondering, you do a good job of, of, of explaining this, but I'm wondering for the audience, could you explain why black churches history hadn't been seen as being, as hasn't been seen as being orthodox and how, yeah. If anyway, did it affect you growing up? Uh, did you have a, a, a low-sided view of the black church when it came to theological yeah. um, uh, prowess and et cetera? Let me give you like two quick historical notes. There's like these two inflection points in black church history. One is, is that our founding and our founding, the founding of the black church comes in the context of the, of the great awakenings where kind of evangelical preachers come to the South and they preach the gospel a distorted gospel, actually, this largely rejected until the slaves themselves were able to kind of get a hold to the Christian faith and make it their own. But the, mm -hmm. the emphasis on kind of belief in personal salvation and kind of a love for scripture and study comes into the black church. Mm -hmm. Another another important inflection point is when the African-American church kind of comes into the academy and James Cone is there during the progressive turn in mainline institution. That's a different question. So what happens then is you have this kind of initial reception of Christianity, but because of the context of slavery, it is put alongside this activism um, towards freedom and justice. And so the black church then begins with this emphasis on scripture, personal salvation and justice rooted in its historical context. But that's not taken seriously, largely because of racism, because of what the society said black people were intellectually, our scholarship, our preaching and our, our ministry wasn't taken very seriously. And so that, that kind of general disdain for all things black permeates the black church. We're not seen as a serious source of theological reflection until, um, you know, the 1960s and 1970s outside of our community. We've always known that we have people who can preach and teach and do those kinds of things. Now, how did that affect me personally? Well, I grew up in, I had a positive experience in, in the black church. I know, I know some people have this experience where they grow up in the black church and they say, I didn't know the gospel. And then I kind of come into evangelicalism and I learned these theological <laughs> right. categories. That wasn't me. My, my, my grand, my father, my grandfather's a preacher. I got ministers all over my family. I grew up in a healthy black church that taught me about who Jesus was. But here's the thing. And this is the tricky part. I try to tell people 
Like, it's really hard to expect an 18 or 19 year old to have the theological sophistication of what we have as an adult. So my sister went to a black black college. She went to Tuskegee. But when mm-hmm. I to go to college, my um, the recruiter came and spit game. And the next thing you know, like I'm at this I'm at this largely white school. And when you go to a largely white institution, it's not because you're necessarily rejecting blackness. It's because like you are from I'm from a family, but we didn't have a lot of people who go to college. So I didn't have three or four people sitting down with me, talk to me about the pros and the cons. I'm just listening to what recruiters say. And the recruiter who got me to the school that I went to had the best game. And so I went there. And once you're in that institution, you're in a majority white space. The questions that are being posed to you are the questions that come from white Christianity. And so for me, by the time I go to university, it seems like the only options are white progressivism and white evangelicalism. There were black people there, but they were all in the black student union. They really wasn't talking about, you know, it was like a different kind of vibe. It was more of a community thing. And so it's what I did, and what I think it happens to a lot, you just kind of float down the stream. And you say, well, hold on, given these two options, well, then which one am I going to choose? Then there's a third option that I talked about um, like black progressivism. Obviously, there's black progressives in the in the black church. So I'm not saying they're a separate category. But what I notice is that like in black ecclesial spaces, black church spaces, the progressive strand tends to be kind of the minority voice fighting for space. And in the academic scene, the progressive strand is the dominant voice. Mm-hmm. And the only black people who they can kind of that oftentimes get talked about are kind of like black people who just repeat the talking points of the status quo. Mm-hmm. And so what I saw was there were black progressives. And when black progressives criticized the black church, it was like a particular form of the black church, the kind of the black church that was cozying up to evangelicalism, that was afraid to push back on kind of the the sinfulness that was there. And so what I want to say is, well, hold on. There's a form of black Christianity rooted in the sermons, the manuscripts, the testimonies, the books and the literature of the black church that has that kind of is in the middle of the great tradition, the things that Christians will always believe. And it's for that reason in the public square advocating for justice. And those people, people like Mother Pollard and um, Fannie Lou Hamer were at the center of the civil rights movement, that it was it was the black church, not all of it, but a significant portion of it. Or, yeah, significant portion of it who are out in the streets doing these things precisely because they were Christian. And so this book is at least to me an attempt to articulate that ethos. I used it. I used the example of like when you go to a party and people say, well, like, how can you tell like if the party's it or if it's not it? It's not necessarily just the music. It's not necessarily the people. It's like a vibe that you get when you're there and you're like, you know what? This is the spot where I want to be. And so I feel like because for a long time, black folks were just excluded from the academy because of segregation. It's hard to necessarily always find like black ecclesial theology in print but it exists in ecclesial spaces. And I tried to bring those ecclesial spaces to the forefront and then talk about them in the book. Excellent. Could you, you talked about some of your experience uh, in the church. Can you tell us how you got into uh, biblical scholarship? So when I, when I got ready to go to um, college, I was going to be, because I wanted to learn black history. Um, Mm -hmm. I grew up in like, for us, we used to watch Eyes on the Prize like every year during Black History Month, um, one and two. And so and that led me to kind of the Harlem Renaissance and all of this other black stuff. So I knew some black history, but I said I really wanted to be I really what I really wanted to be was like a um, 
like a black history teacher. I want to teach black history in colleges and universities. So I want to do that. But I was also from the church. So I said, well, let me do let me do religion. So I started off college as a religion and um, basically history major with the, with the, uh, a desire to focus on black black history. And so but once I got there, I just found that like the, the questions that they were asking in the academy weren't the questions that anybody in my neighborhood ever asked about. Now, I want to make this as clear as I possibly can. I care about justification. I really do. I think that it's important that you know we're justified by faith. But like every single book that I was reading about Paul during the time that I was coming through was like this endless fight about justification, you know, the spiritual gifts, like all of these kinds of things. So like, but like at the corner, we weren't talking about spiritual gifts. We're trying to think about like what is a person and what does the Bible have to speak about who, who people are? Mm. And so our or what does the Bible say about justice? What does the Bible have to say about the people who are who are being oppressed? So like I just felt like at first I was turned off of from biblical studies because biblical studies seemed to me to be asking questions that were like pressing in white suburbs, not the black communities that I was from. And so really it wasn't until this is really weird because he's like a white British dude. But I started reading some like N.T. Wright stuff. Let's go. And um, he starts talking about like the kingdom of God hmm. and how at the center of like the New Testament is this idea of like God, Jesus is king and um, how Jesus's kingdom is rooted in justice and righteousness. And he says, you know, we don't just have to do Romans 1, 16 and 17. We could look at Jesus as the first sermon. And he started talking about things like how important the Exodus was in shaping early Christianity and how like this idea of kind of liberation becomes a central motif, liberation from sin and, uh, and actual liberation. And so I was like, wow, like this stuff seems similar to um, some of the stuff that I heard in the black church. So I said, OK, if I can talk about the kingdom, then I can be a biblical scholar. And that was one of the ways that I went there. Interesting thing about that is. This, this is going to sound nerdy, but for the people who are there, uh, this, is, this is for like the 10 people who might get this, who might be. <laughs> but I'm, I want to give you some game. We had, um, th there was this period in biblical scholarship. This is actually important. This is important for black church people. So buckle up for like five minutes. And let me give you this. There's this period in biblical scholarship, basically rooted in anti-Semitism and kind of European exceptionalism where the idea was in order for Jesus to become the universal savior of the world, he had to become yes, less Jewish. And they started to read the New Testament with a much stronger emphasis on the Greco-Roman background than the Jewish background. They had the, they had the effect of kind of making G, remaking Jesus into the image of kind of like the sage, like the what became kind of the, the modern European intellectual. They kind of remade Jesus into white middle-class Jesus. This also is in the context where anti-Semitism is, is going on, which is happening in Germany, which during like World War II and the Holocaust. So the Holocaust happens and we recognize, oh, my goodness, like the anti-Semitism, the, 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 the taking away of Jesus's ethnicity is part of the ways in which it allowed things like anti-Semitism to arise. So then they said, if you're still with me, we need to make we need to remember that Jesus is Jewish. So revolution in biblical scholarship, it says, let's reread Jesus's story in light of a Jewish background instead of only emphasizing the Greco-Roman background. And so this 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 is this happened in the 70s and the 80s. And most of biblical scholarship since then has been coming to grips with our implicit anti-Semitism. Now, why, one of the things they did when they found this out is that, you know, what's really, really important in the Bible, the Exodus. And Jesus is universal 
only in so much as he's Israel's true king. So we need to recover kingdom as a part of theology and the exodus as a part of theology. Now, here's the amazing thing about this black people. While all of this is going on from like 19, let's just say 1900 through 19, you know, 1980. Do you know what the black people were doing in this in Alabama and all over the South and all over the rest of the United States are saying, hey, y'all are reading the Bible wrong because you're not paying attention to the Exodus. You're not paying attention to the kingdom. And so all the, the, the stuff that became a revolution in biblical scholarship, they kind of changed the discipline. Black people were like your black pastor was saying with not nary a degree because he was because of segregation the entire time. You can go and read those of you who like here's the here's the receipt. Go and read the introduction to Jesus and the disinherited by Howard Thurman and what he says about the Jewishness of Jesus. And then pick up something like Jesus and the victory of God by N.T. Wright or W. Davies talking about the Jewishness of Jesus. And you will see how much black biblical interpretation from the church anticipates the academic turn that they don't figure this out for another 50 years. So when I started to see this, right, I said, wait, well, hold on. You're saying this. Then my pastor was saying the other thing. Here's, here, here's another thing that, that, that um, is important in biblical studies. So, sorry for going nerdy. You have like the, the reuse of scripture. How much of like Paul's writings were like a continual allusion to the Old Testament. So Paul's always calling back these Old Testament passages in his preaching so that you can't understand the New Testament, the Old Testament. Do you know who was like during all of this time, once again, preaching the mess out of the Old Testament and bringing Jesus into it? Black pastors. They were the kings and queens of using these Old Testament texts to talk about who God was. And so part of what I want to, part of what I do in New Testament is to say, well, like, Y'all aren't that dope. We've been doing this for a long time and <laughs> and trying to make people pay attention to the seriousness of black intellectual thought. Well, you just preached it. So it's it's interesting that you say that because uh, Bonhoeffer himself was another yeah. individual who spent time in yes. Harlem. Yes. And it changed his theology, right? It yeah. changed the way he viewed and talked about a black Jesus. Can you talk about how Germany yeah. has affected or changed how we are impacted better yet, how a lot of people see Christianity from a liberal perspective. Man, I feel bad because I, I, I feel like I've been dunking on Germany for like the last <laughs> couple of years. And I got a boy who's, you know, I got, I got some German folks. So I don't want to like, it's not <laughs> ontological, right? So I don't want to say like Germany is the problem. But a, 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 let me tell you how, let me, the better way of saying it than locating in Germany, let's talk about how biblical studies started. Sorry, y'all. Let me give this is like class time. So there used to be like there used to be the state where like you know the state tells you what it was. God put this this king in charge, and there's like the, the there's a battle between the state and the church as to who would tell you who should do what. And so part of the Reformation was um, the Protestant Reformation is taking the power from kind of like the established church and like giving it back to the people. And part of that then involves like the two forms of theology. Systematic theology is, um, you know, kind of putting God into these categories and understanding these things this way. It's what they said is, well, the church controls, like the Roman Catholic Church, they control kind of dogmatic official theology. If we do biblical theology, it's a way of kind of wrestling power from the official church and like giving it to the academy and maybe giving it to the people. But like biblical theology really was created to, to like 
just to, to be honest, to push back on systematic and official dogmatic ecclesial theology. Mm. Say that we're going to get to the real Jesus, not the Jesus that, that is kind of supporting the church and the establishment. The problem was, well, the people who started biblical theology had their own agendas. And their agenda was to create a Jesus that wasn't the, st the state of the, the Jesus of uh, kind of the official church, but the Jesus of the academy who was acceptable to this. Yeah, think of an evolutionary understanding of humanity and the idea that they're kind of we're reaching this final stage of human evolution. War is going to go away and we need a universal religion to match this universalism that's coming with this, this kind of um, peace is going to go throughout all of Europe. And so in that sense, they were they were trying to get rid of those elements of Christianity that weren't really good for modern man. So the supernaturalism, the miracles, and all of those things were taken away. And what you had was Jesus, the kind of philosopher who told you these wonderful things about what it meant to be alive, and kind of Jesus as the wise, as the wise man. Well, the problem was that like the 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 people who were oppressed in Israel didn't just need a wise man; they needed liberation. So, so that means that like that edge of of Jesus. Jesus, the king of Israel, who's come to liberate his people, the same people who are liberated in Egypt, right? Then you have things like the prophets. And so the, 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 the idea is they needed an actual God to come and liberate them, not just someone to give them advice on how to live kind of this middle-class lifestyle. And so in that sense, like the academy, portions of the academy created a Jesus that was suitable to them. And like, you all know about this Jesus, this Jesus who he's kind of like, He's like Plato or Socrates. You know, you read him, and if he if if what he says strikes you as a way to live, then that's fine. But if it doesn't, then you can put it up and read something else. But that Jesus that was constructed isn't the Jesus of the Bible. Now you can disagree with the Jesus of the Bible all that you want, but there's a vision of who this person is that arises from these texts. And the effect of um some of the academic study of some of the academic deconstructionism in the New Testament was it, it, it took off the edge in that challenge. And so that's when I started talking about, and, and some of that is rooted in Germany. And that's what you, and so the interesting thing about that though, is like that Jesus, that deconstructed, de-supernaturalized Jesus is the Jesus who then kind of comes into the academy, who then we see as black people, mm -hmm. you kind of come into academic study. And then what you do is you take that Jesus who's already been kind of shifted and you just make them a little bit blacker and then you kind of put them back into society. And what I say, well, the only way to actually find the real Jesus as best as you can is to give Jesus to Israel in order to give him to the world. And, uh, and so when you give Jesus back to Israel, you get the prophets back. When you get the prophets back, you get all the stuff that you need to say about justice and equality and, and those other things. Because if you don't do that, this is the important part. If you don't do that, what you end up with is the is the current socio cultural political consensus, and and then you say, well, trust that Jesus agrees with that and follow that. And here's the problem: every single time there's been a social cultural political consensus, mostly constructed by like white people about what black people should be doing, we always lose in that scenario. So I just don't trust them. I'm skeptical of skeptics, and I say I'm gonna I'm not gonna trust your deconstruction of the Bible, and then your reconstruction of this cultural order rooted in your understanding of how the world works instead of trusting like Jesus. And so that was ultimately what I'm talking about in the book was an attempt to say, well, hold on, yes, all of these criticisms are fine. This is not a rejection of high criticism. It's not a rejection of difficult questions. It's not a rejection of any of that stuff. It's just saying. If we're free, if black people are free 
to make their own path, then we're free to, to, to make to take a different path than the one that's been laid out for us that began with the creation of biblical studies in Germany. So you're, you're basically right now, you're you were dancing around the perimeter of the next question. So I'm just going to just ask you straight out to, to answer yeah. this. Um, there are a lot of black uh, academics or black progressive or liberal theologians who would think that orthodoxy is a white man's construct. Yes. And that is harmful for yes. black people. How, how do you respond to that? Or how do other Christians respond to that? That accusation? I think that either history matters or history doesn't matter. And this, so there's, there's, there's the theological answer and then there's the historical answer. The historical answer is black Christians. Like there's always been a variety. I talked about this in the book. There's been a variety of answers, but I'm going to say this is the majority. And if, and if I'm wrong about this, people can push back. A significant majority of African-Americans have seen in the texts and teachings of Christianity a friend and not an enemy. And they've read those texts and then said, based upon what these texts say about what persons are and who God is, God wills my liberation and my freedom. And they are able to say that without saying, therefore, my personal salvation and my holiness of life are oppressive. So historically, these things have been pulled to have been, have been have been joined together, and I can pull you receipts as far back as you want to go. You could talk about Fannie Lou Hamer, who, who we already talked about. We could, we could talk about someone like Frederick Douglass. We could talk about like the actual testimonies of the founders of the Church of God in Christ, the AME, and the National Baptist Convention. You can go back and look and see what they said, and all of those people. You can find many of them were both strongly critical of slavery and white supremacy, but also said Jesus died for my sins. Hmm. And so what I'm saying is like, we have receipts to show that these things don't necessarily need to be in, um, in, in competition with one another. Now from the theological perspective, we can say, we can say this, like the, the central teachings of Christianity, right. Is that I like, for example, the, the idea that I'm capable of both, Pro, like being profoundly wrong and participating in the, round, the wronging of others. And for that, I need to be forgiven by God. It's not inherently oppressive. It is something that, it, it, because at, at the center, at, at the center of the Christian, the Christian gospel never critiques you without giving you hope. Hmm. The Christian gospel, at the moment that it tells you that you are insufficient, it comes to you with God's own sufficiency. The Christian God, the Christian teaching also talks about the kind of things like common grace, that even if you're not a Christian, it doesn't mean that you're incapable of ever doing anything good. Like the idea that, 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 that the Bible says that apart from me, you can do nothing. The point of all of that is to say, like, yes, we need God to accomplish things that are truly good and beautiful. But it doesn't mean that apart from Christianity, nobody ever does anything whack. We just walk around and punch people in the neck. But the Christian gospel says that for humanity to be that which God created us to be, we need his help. And so I don't find any of those things inherently oppressive. Now, have there been people, black and white people, who've abused the Christian gospel and abused the Bible to justify all kinds of craziness? Yes, they have. But alongside that testimony, we have to listen to the counter testimony of people who saw in that same text, freedom and not, and not liberation. And so, and, and, and this, and this is really like what, I, and I said this briefly, but I'm just going to, I should probably say it more clearly. We have to think about like what is actually going on in the sense of the deconstruction of biblical authority to replace it with um, kind of like, it's basically a social, cultural, political consensus as to what we are thinking in the moment ought to be done. Is and then and like whatever that consensus is, whatever that consensus is about 
economics, morality, like politics, all of this stuff, it's seen as functionally infallible hmm. that you can't challenge. So you want me to, in the end, it's like you want me to trust the, infallib- the infallibility of your like political theological agenda and then root that in, but I don't, I'm not, I can't trust the biblical text. So what I, what I want to say is I'm allowed to say that the, the Bible as a whole paints a picture of what it means for me to be human and to follow Jesus that I am willing to trust. And that doesn't mean that I'm not like, I don't understand the problems. I don't understand the questions. It's just that like, I've heard the questions and I'm not convinced. Mm-hmm. And I think that, I think that what's happened is there's been this strong, there's been, there's a certain tendency to say that the only way that we can find justice is, is through deconstruction. And I want to say that it, we can also find justice through the hope rooted in the gospel. So I got a couple more questions. Cause I think this is good. It's very easy for Christians today to be pulled away by the extremes of, uh, you know, some of that you said about the social uh, political consciousness. I think I'm maybe mislabeling it, but uh, how the predominant voices are speaking about justice today and the answers to the questions that are being asked, especially from the academics and some of the activists, a lot of those solutions may seem somewhat problematic for Christians. How do we as Christians engage in a larger discussion about social justice and I guess you could say the collective conscious around these topics that are being tossed around while at the same time keep keeping biblical fidelity? Um, because we can we can operate in this nihilistic um, mindset where it seems like there is no hope, there there is no resilience. Yeah. Um, and it and it's grieving me because I found that myself I I just I get fatigued and I and I lose hope. But yeah. oftentimes when that happens is because I'm not seeing Jesus as the as a solution. So help yeah. me out. Give me hope. What, what what the Christian has to be able to do first is be, we have to say more than no, right? It's easy to look at what's going on in some of these protests and other things and go, this isn't it. So we have to do more than saying this isn't it. We have to actually articulate in the public square how the Christian gospel speaks to those things. So when I started writing for the New York Times and the Washington Post, that's what I was attempting to do. I didn't know it at the time, but there's there's an article called like what the Bible has to say about black rage that was published in the New York Times. There's an article that I just published um, last week in the Washington Post about black Christians and voting. And what I wanted to say in those articles was like, look, here's the way in which the Christian gospel speaks uniquely to these issues. Because the tendency is to do one of the following. It's either to a baptize what everybody else is doing and say Christians agree mm-hmm. or to say this isn't Christian enough. Therefore, we can't participate in it. What I want to say is like what I would suggest is we need to be in the streets, too. We need to make it clear why we are here mm-hmm. now as it relates to issues of hope. And this is the thing that I, I think I wrote about this in the book. And this is like this is key. If, if you're a black person in America, this is what you need to hear. It is pivotal for your own spiritual, theological, and emotional health to ask questions in the right order. And this is what I mean. If we do something like say, you know what? They just murdered George Floyd and Ahmed Arbery and Breonna Taylor. They just murdered them. And like because of these things that have happened, I don't believe that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. Hmm. Like that's the long term. Like if your faith is kind of deconstructed by the injustice, like the what what's really happens is 
these incidents cause you to relitigate or rethink through things that you always believed. And so, but the Christianity is, is, is a historical faith. We think things that happen in time. And so the first question that we have to always ask ourselves is, was the tomb empty on the third day? And if Jesus Christ, is, and, and so that means the question of the resurrection, the, the central claim of Christianity, the question of the resurrection has to be answered first. And you have to say to yourself, were the women and the, and the disciples telling the truth? Do I have evidence to believe that Jesus Christ is risen? And if Jesus Christ actually rose from the dead in Jerusalem in, you know, whatever A.D., 30 A.D., 33 A.D., then the murder of George Floyd can't unresurrect Jesus. Jesus is either ascending and reigning or he's not. And if he is ascending and reigning, then the world is a different place, even when you don't experience that difference. And so one of the things and, and so that's the reason why, like, historical perspective is like really, really important. I mean, we talk about what is happening in America, which is horrible. But like they were actual, like we were Christians during slavery. Right. Right. And not just in slavery, during the colonialization of Africa. And one of the things, and this is, this is the important part, because people say, well, then what is it, what good is it done for black people? I'll answer it this way. You gotta, you gotta be able to take the testimony of the slaves seriously. You can go back. It's in the book where when the slaves are liberated in DC, the slaves in DC say, God, not this ain't this ain't about Abraham Lincoln, anybody else. They said God has acted to liberate us. And the liberation of the slaves in DC, they said, is a picture of the universal liberation of the slaves that are going to come later. So they saw in God's activity in the moment a sign that God's going to do more. And so the, the testimony of the slaves themselves they say, you know what? This society is broken. There's profound sinfulness, but God is at work here. And so what we say then, like, the evidence of God's existence for the black Christian, even if people don't like to hear it, is the existence of black people 400 years later, despite what we've done. And the tremendous accomplishments of black people in this country, this, like this, this, this black culture, that we constructed from nothing is a miracle. And so when, and so it's hard to see that when like, listen, we're, we're recording this now where there's a brother who just got shot in, in in Milwaukee, and in Milwaukee, in Kenosha, Wisconsin, right? There's another like shooting of an unarmed black man, and so you you have this real sense of despair. But either the Christian gospel speaks to this or it doesn't. I'm going to say one last thing about this, then I'll let you back in. I know we're going to be on our time. Um, there is the story, and this story is always like touched me. I wrote an article about this in New York Times. It's called "The Bloody Fourth Day of Christmas." Jesus is born. And then, like, Herod, a couple of years later, says, you know, he wants to kill Jesus, and Jesus escapes to Egypt. And then Herod massacres all of the, this is, this is Matthew chapter 2, Herod massacres all of the children two years and under who were in Bethlehem around the time when Jesus was born. And you, and you read that story in Matthew's gospel, and you go, well, why would Matthew put a story of babies being slaughtered right after Jesus came? Shouldn't Jesus' coming have prevented things like the slaughter of innocent babies. And I think the point that Matthew's making is just the opposite. There is no other world in which to come into, for Jesus to be incarnated into, than a world that massacres babies. This yeah. is the context into which the incarnation occurs. So there is no other world into which the ministry of Jesus and Black Christians 
are going to go forward than in a world that devalues black life. That's the world that we live in. And it's the world that God has entered. And the fact that God has entered into that world and defeated death is the basis of our hope. If the basis for our hope is the is the sinfulness of like if the sinfulness of what humanity has 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 done against black people theologically shakes us, then we haven't taken seriously the story of the incarnation. Because the story of the incarnation shows you the problem was this bad that God had to come into the middle of it. And so what I see when I look at this broken world is a world that exists in opposition to God through which the black Christian and other Christians live as a testimony to his coming kingdom. And as long as we keep those things to the forefront of what we're doing, then I think we're able to, to navigate this season with some hopefulness. When we lose track of that, and I lose it too, right? We lose track of it, then we 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 start to slide towards this nihilism. But that's the reason why, like, it's sad because we're kind of stuck in COVID. Um, that's why, like, in the middle of that nihilism, like the like the church and the worshiping community kind of pulls us back. So you 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 conclude the chapter of the self has something to say with um, this hope of trying to galvanize different voices, different cultures. And I'm gonna read this quote, and then uh, you can I have a little question after that. it says. What I have in mind, then, is a unified mission in which our varied cultures turn to the text in dialogue with our culture and other cultures to discern the mind of Christ together. How is that possible today? How is that possible today? Um, how? What does that look like? And um, how do we come together appreciating the diversity of cultures while at the same time having somewhat of a... a, a a united voice, not a uniformed voice, if that makes sense. Have you ever um, sometimes show had an idea for your second album and you teased it in the first album? Yeah. Um, well, that's a, that was a teaser. Okay. Um, for the second book. Sounds funny. It was coming out. That book's coming out. Oh, my goodness. Probably in 2022. But at the time I was finishing writing Reading While Black, I was contracting uh, a second book that was called The New Testament in Color. And what I did, and this is you talk about how we do it, I'm gonna tell you what we actually did. We got together black scholars, um, Latinos, Latino and Latina brothers and sisters, we got together Asian American brothers and sisters, and we got together white scholars, and we're creating a single volume commentary on the New Testament, where where each like we kind of everyone gets their one book, it's gonna be all together in one book with articles um around you know reading as an African American, reading while you know as an Asian American. There's even a book on like as chapter on like how does it what does it mean to be a white reader of the Bible to come to grips with your own privilege and location and still try to engage in the interpretive process, and the purpose of that book it is in some ways a spiritual sequel to Reading While Black, because I think there's like two parts of what needs to happen in the church. I think that like people need to kind of we got to discover who we are first, right? Black people need to have a sense of I am valuable and I'm beautiful. God created me and I have worth. But that's not the end of the story. The end of the story is the creation of the beautiful community where we're all together. And it's precisely our unity that testifies to what God has done. That The gospel is big enough to bring us together. So now, how do you actually do that? The only way that you can do that is rooted in truth, right? You can't say like, well, let's just be together. Let's be reconciled. Like reconciliation is, is, is after justice, right? And so part of what it means for us to discern the mind of Christ is to tell the truth about what's happened in the past, 
what's happening currently, and then turn to the biblical text saying, how can they point the way forward? So I think that reconciliation and kind of multi-ethnicity and multiculturalism can never be separated from truth telling. And it always breaks down when people want black people as a part of their community at the excuse, uh, at the expense of like black history and black suffering. So you can come as long as you don't tell us anything that we ever did or the implications of what's happening right now. So if you ask me, like, what does it look like to be a diverse and multicultural community in the church? It has to be a community that tells the truth about what's happening and points the way towards something hopeful. And hopefully in the book, New Testament in Color, um, that's going to it basically be a commentary. We'll begin to like look at how reading the Bible like across cultures together is important. I say last, I, I want to say one more thing about that. Most of it because of America. Um, we each ethnic minority often tries to get like basically the white culture to listen to them. So you will have like black people saying white people, you're not listening. Or we might have like our Asian American brothers and sisters saying white people, you're not listening. Our Latino brothers and sisters saying white people, you're not listening. But here's the truth is, and this is this is this is conviction to me. I was saying all of that, but I wasn't reading enough Latina theology. Yes, uh-huh. I was re- I was doing that and I wasn't reading about what was going on with my Asian American brothers and sisters. And so what I had to do for myself is to say, I can't ask somebody to listen to my story if I'm not listening to their story. And so part of what that means, and, so, and not only that, then we need to learn and have a dialogue. There needs to be a dialogue between the African-American community and the Asian-American community because there's some historic tensions there, right? Mm-hmm. And so part of what it means to be a multicultural community involves like the varied conversation need to go on between cultures, not just every ethnic minority kind of positing to the white majority, please listen to us. But how can we actually have a community where we're all of our stories of value, where we're together trying to discern what God wants us to do in our day? Brother, that was rich. It was a, a pleasure. I want to make sure that I, I, I correct myself. I think I may have misstated my, but I wanted to make sure I said unity, not uniformity. Yeah. Uh, but thank you so much. How can we get the book? How can we keep up with you on social media? Please share with us. Um, I got an album dropping. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I, I don't. I don't understand why everybody gets to write books, but I can't rap. But that's another question. That's another question. <laughs> All y'all writing books, but I can't. I can't. I can't. I can't get sixteen. But that's that's another question. For another so, day. Here's the thing: you can write books. That doesn't mean that they're good books. You can write raps. It doesn't mean it's gonna be good rap. <laughs> so. <laughs> You know. No, so um, no, I can't rap. I can't rap. I can out rap my middle my middle schooler. I can rap bars around him, but the rest of everybody else, I'd be embarrassed about. No, I would say, um, and I know you. I mean, I probably should say that, even though I'm kidding. Like, I know that you 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 do way more than rap. I mean, I know that you write, you do plays, that you do all of this other stuff. So I don't want I don't want to box you in. <laughs> uh, no, it's important. It's important because they you know people want to say you're just the you know people they want to. Paint, put people in boxes. So you're an artist and I want to respect that. So no, how can you find my stuff? Um, yeah. You can find me. I'm Issa McCauley is a crazy Googleable name because I'm the only one, <laughs> but you can get my book at any bookstores. Um, you can get it on Amazon. It is a black bookstore in your neighborhood and your community, like buy it there. I always support black businesses. Follow me on social media. Like I said, I have a monthly column. Um, Lord willing that I will keep producing uh, for the New York Times. So you can find me there. Um, I think that's about. I have a podcast that's supposed to be coming eventually. The Disruptor season two show is on season one, and so I think that's about it. I can't think of too much else. 
Well, brother, thank you for joining us. This has been another episode of the Jude 3 Project. I'm excited to be hosting uh, for Lisa, good friend of ours. Uh, I'm sure Baraka. Remember that you can get curriculum, you can donate, you can take online courses at jude3project.org. And uh, here at Jude 3 Project, we are trying to help you to believe what you believe and why you believe it. So thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Jew 3 Project podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can tune into all our past episodes at www.jew3project.com. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. Remember not only to subscribe, but also rate us. That helps us to gauge how we're doing and how you're enjoying the show. And it gives other listeners some ideas about the show as well so thank you so much for tuning in also remember we have our bible engagement app in partnership with back to the bible to help you get better engaged in the bible every single day you take a survey it assesses your strengths and weaknesses and sends you bible verses based on those so it's a great app you can download the app by searching in your app store or google play searching g3 project and it'll be right there for you so thank you again remember if you would like to become a monthly partner or a one-time giver you can do so on our website or by mail just go to g3project.com hit that donate tab and you'll see the option to mail in a gift or give online we appreciate you and i'm so so thankful for you God bless. And remember, here at the Jupe 3 Project, we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it.